Hello. We're pleased you've been able to tune in again to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. One of the major misunderstandings, and we know it was a misunderstanding, is about marriage. And the Corinthians actually wrote to Paul asking for clarification. It's a part of everyday life for many, but we struggle to live it out at its best. Marriage has been celebrated across generations and cultures, but do we really understand what it was designed for and how best we're to live it out? In the New Testament of the Bible, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth with some clear instruction about marriage, its purpose and how we can do it well. There's certainly room for improvement and clarity in our modern experience of marriage. So tonight, Dr. Corbett continues a series of messages looking directly at the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Corinth his topic of focus, why some people need to get married. Let's join him now. We are going to continue our series through uh, Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. And as I hope, I made the case this morning in our previous session that Paul's epistles to the Corinthians are phenomenally relevant, I think. For where our culture is at right now and as we do an exposition just again to explain an exposition is is not so much um, what some preachers might do which is a valid way to take the text of scripture where the verse of scripture might provoke a topic and you sort of go down a rabbit trail to looking, looking at the topic what I'm trying to do with an exposition is, is to actually look at the background of what Paul is responding to and then trying to look over the shoulders perhaps of the original readers in Corinth to see what they would have seen and also to try and understand what Paul saw as he responded to it. The last step in this process of exposition is then to figure out the so what question. Like, how, okay, so that was what he wrote to them, but how does that apply to us today? And it must apply to us today because God has put it in his inspired word for us today. So this exposition through Corinthians, I remind you just of some of the things that we've looked at as we have been going through these epistles, is that, that Corinth was beset with a number of misunderstandings that had caused problems, and we'll have a look at the problems in a moment. But the, one of the major misunderstandings, and we know it was a misunderstanding, is about marriage. And the Corinthians actually wrote to Paul asking for clarification. They wanted clarity on this topic of marriage. So as we, as we look at this, and I'm, this is the, uh, part eight, and I'm calling this why some people need to get married. And I'm also, as I think of that, I think uh, sort of jumping ahead a bit to the relevance for today. There are actually some young people who are actually publicly saying when social researchers ask them, do you intend on getting married? And their answer is no. In fact, the, the number of people who are saying they have no intention to get married has risen dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. This week, uh, uh, Tony and Donna and I were privy to a report done by the professor of law out of Uni University of Queensland that showed not only has the rate of marriage slowed down in Australia, you might think, oh yeah, that's because couples are living together. The rate of couples living together has dramatically plummeted as well. So what you've got is one of the loneliest cultures in Australian history. 
And it's actually social researchers are now documenting this. And one of the things that I hope we can do in, in our church family, in our church fellowship, is model to the generation to come that marriage can be great. It can be great. And I know, because I'm a realist, that there will be, along the way, there will be people who start out in the journey of marriage with all the best intentions and it doesn't work out. I know that. But I also know that God's word has something to say into the topic of marriage. And I've never met someone who has had a marriage end who has admitted that if they had done certain things differently, it would have gone differently for them. So with that in mind, we now look over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul and his audience, the Corinthians, and we notice this, that the false teachers had actually brought great confusion to the topic of marriage. And there, it seems that they were claiming that marriage itself was not a holy institution. They were saying things like that if you get married, you are not holy. You are entering into something that is going to make you, therefore, unholy. And we know that, as we'll see in the text, Paul actually refers to that. So the Corinthians had written to the Apostle Paul seeking clarification on these issues. Now, we've already seen that the Corinthians had written to Paul about certain things they were prepared to let Paul know about. And then there were other things that they really should have written to him about and they didn't. And Paul has had a verbal report, which he refers to from Chloe's people in the opening chapter. But this is one they wrote to him about. They wanted to understand about marriage. So we open up in chapter 7 and verse 1, where it says this. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now I mentioned in the previous session that this is one of the most sarcastic epistles, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, that you'll read in the Bible. Paul is using sarcasm all the way through because of the vicious attacks that he has endured at the the instigation of these false teachers. It seems like, according to C.K. Barrett, who's a, an internationally renowned commentator on Corinthians, that this statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, was what the false teachers were saying. And so now Paul repeats it. In fact, there's going to be a few of these things where Paul takes the language of his attackers and he simply uses it, but has a different point to make. So Paul used this language, but he is putting a different context on it. Now, how do we know that? Well, we'll see. Paul's statement, this is, uh, we just need to be very clear here. When Paul repeats what the false teachers were saying, he is in no way endorsing what the false teachers taught, their false doctrine, not at all. But he's using it sarcastically almost. And so we read in the second verse. When Paul says it's not good for man to have se- a man to have sexual relations with a woman, was he thinking marriage like the false teachers were thinking? Well, we read in the second verse, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. 
So you see, Paul is not agreeing with the false teachers that marriage is unholy and that if a man enters into a sexual marriage with a woman, he's actually becoming unholy, defiled. And Paul actually says in this verse, no, every man should have a wife and every woman, every wife should have her own husband. So Paul is going to make this point that if we could achieve godly marriage in the church, we would go a long way to preventing one of the major problems in the church, which was sexual immorality. In fact, we could actually extrapolate what Paul is saying here and say this. If we could encourage what society have a vision of what a godly marriage is, we could actually not only prevent sexual immorality, we could actually prevent, go a long way to preventing sexual abuse, sexual harassment and sexual crime. Follow my reasoning here. A godly marriage is the means by which sexual sin can be prevented. And I'm going to define what we mean by a godly marriage. But you need to understand that a godly marriage is emotionally, psychologically, sexually and spiritually healthy. And by healthy, I mean satisfying. So that when a man and a woman enter into marriage, they are doing something that is going to be good for them, good for their children and good for society. In 2004, the Tasmanian Law Reform Institute released a discussion paper claiming that children could be raised by any two people of any gender combination and any biological or non-biological link to the children and fare just as well as if they were raised by their biological parents. That was an audacious claim. And it came from a worldview that was completely trying to undermine the Christian message about what marriage and family is all about. I was able to respond to their claim with academic peer-reviewed journal articles showing that that was utterly and completely false. In fact, in their discussion paper, they actually said there is no evidence to the contrary. There actually is a lot of evidence still to the contrary that children fare best when raised by their loving, biological, married parents. And this was supported by the Australian researcher, Professor uh, Sarantakis, who documented this. And that was later published in a small book called What is a Family? Now, a godly marriage, let me, we, we need to understand this. It's grounded in what's called a covenant commitment made between a man and a woman a covenant commitment we see this term covenant described in the old testament it, it sounds something like this i am yours you are mine what i have is now yours what you have is now mine now kim is piping up here let me tell you this is how she worded this covenant commitment she said to me, what you have is now mine. What I have is still mine. <laughs> Sounds familiar. All right. But when God formed a covenant with Israel, he said, I am yours and you are mine. Everything I have is yours. When God formed a covenant with Abram, 
He invested his name, which is not Jehovah. It is Yahweh. He put the Yah into Abram's name and he became Abraham, which is a sign of covenant relationship, which is why when a man and a woman marry, the woman takes the man's name because it's a part of covenant relationship. And so we have in the Bible things that represented and symbolized that covenant. There would be, we see in Jacob's covenant with Laban, that they both put their hands on an animal and said, so let this be done to us if either of us break this covenant with each other. And they slew the animal and roasted it and ate it with witnesses. And all of these things become the, the, the shadows, the seeds of what we do now in a wedding ceremony followed by a reception. So a marriage covenant is a lifelong agreement of mutual surrender between a husband and a wife. That's why we said in the previous session in looking at Corinthians that love in the Christian biblical sense is not the same perspective as the way the world looks at it. The way the world looks at it is I have lust, I have desire, I have attraction, I feel satisfied when someone satisfies that in me and they call that love. But the Bible calls love self-sacrifice for the welfare of another. So when a man marries a woman, a woman marries a man, the man is saying to the woman, I am prepared to lay down my life in self-sacrifice for your highest good. One of the things that ensures that, because that is a commitment that you should only make once as long as the person lives to whom you're making that commitment in other words it's a big deal i describe my marriage to kim 34 plus years ago as the second greatest commitment i've ever made in my life because your commitment to christ is more of a commitment than the one you marry but you get this it's about giving of yourself it's about mutual surrender. It's not what you can get out of your marriage. It's what you can give in your marriage. But now, notice this language of covenant in the next verse, verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. So now we come back to the opening statement by Paul. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, comma, because... He should be married to have sexual relationships with a woman. And here he's saying that this is good. Now, I try to help a couple prepare for marriage by teaching them, right, and just uh, there's, there's, uh, there's one person here really is a candidate for me preparing them for marriage. So listen up, please, Tom. And <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just say this. I'll just make this point. When I did the funeral the other week, I had two girls independently come up to me from the youth group and they said, hmm, because they're looking at some of these photos and they said, hmm, you're getting quite old. How, how much longer you, do you reckon you've got to go? They both said. I said, oh, why? Well, I was kind of hoping you might be able to marry me one day to someone. But I don't know if you've got much longer to go. <laughs> 
one of them's 18. I said, well, well, how, well when do you think you're going to get married? He said, oh, I don't know, maybe three years. <laughs> I said, I'll see if I can hang on for that long. But one of the things I, I will do is the work, because over the years I've, I've discovered that you have these situations where people enter into a Christ, what you think is a Christian marriage and they haven't got this figured out. They think sex is something God doesn't talk about, God doesn't want to know about, you close the door and he can't even look. And what we find Paul saying here is pretty blunt, really about the central role of sexual union between a husband and, and his wife and a wife with her husband. So I have, over the years, had couples come who've had marriage problems and I discover, and can I tell you, I'm just being really frank and transparent with you, and Donna and Tony, you've got to learn this as well. You've got to learn to maintain a poker face sometimes in pastoral ministry. I had a couple where it turned out that for nearly, at that point, the 15 years of their marriage, the husband had never seen his wife naked. And I had to keep a straight face. Like, really, it was very, very difficult because I was shocked because that's not a part of giving yourself. But what was at the root of it was the fact that there was a distortion in the, the wife's mind about what sex actually was all about. Added to that, I've had couples who have said they haven't been sexually active with each other for years. Now these are not older couples where you might think, oh, fair enough. You know, older couples like over 40. And you realise you've got a distorted view of why this is important within marriage. And you know, there's a lot I could say about this, but when I'm preparing a couple, I, I warn against some of the things that the world will tell them is going to help them with this, such as pornography and so on, because it won't. It's actually going to destroy that side of your relationship. So this is really important that we understand this. And one of the things I do with a couple is we actually go through this chapter so that they can see that this is actually really important. In the next verse, verse 4, it says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Which means when she says, can you take the rubbish out? He should comply. <laughs> Verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that... Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So here we have one of the things that is going to be integral to covenant marriage. It's the sexual union of a husband with his wife. There's a lot of, again, social research data that shows married couples in a long-term relationship are more sexually satisfied than those who are sexually active and not married. The data is overwhelming. And there's a lot of things that also show how that can be undermined, which I've mentioned pornography is one of them, because that doesn't help at all. Now, Paul is really, really clear about this. Sexual activity does not defile a person within marriage. It doesn't make them unholy. But now Paul is going to address two other categories of people. 
One of them is the, are the singles. I'll be the first to admit, we as a church don't really, we don't really do <coughs> ministry very well to singles. I, 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 I acknowledge that and we're trying. We are really trying to work that out. But the Apostle Paul in this text states that some people will not get married. They will, they will not get married and they will be single. And the inference in what Paul is saying here is that they will have to learn to control their passions. Paul actually will make this point about himself that he, well, let's read the verse, verses 6 and 7. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. In other words, Paul is saying, God has given me a gift of singleness and celibacy. And with that gift, my battle is not as great as others who might really battle with the desire for companionship, marriage and sexual intimacy. But let's consider this. Maybe you haven't considered this, and I'll put the thought out to you. I want us to be able to reach people who have become sexually broken in our culture. And to do that, that will mean that some people have been so broken, their desires are distorted. It can mean, perhaps, that a young boy was homosexually raped, maybe. And the psychological damage of that is unbelievable. And the result is, on those that, have, that I have heard talk about this, is that it becomes very, very confusing for them because now they have distorted desires. I was talking with a young person this morning who inquired about some of these issues and I recounted the story of a man who responded to an article that I'd written and uh, he, he wrote on our church's Facebook wall. And he called me all the names, bigot, homophobe, intolerant, all of these names. And my response, and I'm still trying to figure out how do you respond to these sorts of things. But my response to him in this instance was, thank you for sharing how you feel about what I've written. It sounds to me like this is a very, very important topic to you. And he responded. He said, yes, it is. And we got chatting, and this was happening on the church's Facebook wall. And he actually said this, when I was a young boy being raised by a single mother, a man came into my mother's life who sexually abused me when I was, I think I reckon it was something like five or six years of age. He did that for the next six, seven, eight years or so. As a teenager, I got involved in the gay lifestyle and I maintained that through my life. Always bitter, always angry. And, I, and, and he said, that's, that's what he wrote. And I, and I said, I'm so sorry to hear that. That must have been really, really difficult for you growing up. He wrote back and he said, I wish... I had met someone like you when I was younger who could have helped me process this. I said, I wish you had as well. Then he said, it's too late now. I've been diagnosed with cancer and I have a short while to live. But I want you to know, it's nice to meet 
someone who's a Christian who cares. And, I, and I, about two or, two or three o'clock in the morning, I woke up thinking, what a remarkable exchange I've just had. And I, I actually got my iPad out and I, I read it and I read this and I thought, and I screenshotted it. By morning, he deleted all those comments because I thought, you know what? There will be people in that community, if I can call it that, who will say, don't say that. Don't admit that. And he deleted it. But I, I kept that. And I, I, for me, it taught me something about listening to people's stories. And I want to see people come into this church who are not like us. And the test for us is going to be not so much acceptance, but welcome. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because when you, when people say, I just want to be accepted, they are saying, plus what I do and what I bring. And we're saying, no, but we, like, we love you. We, accept, we, we welcome you. And we want you to come on this journey and we want to hear your story and we want to do what we can. And do I think that's going to be easy for us as a church? No. Nah. Are we going to always get it right? No. Nah. But can we try? That's what I want. It is. It, it is absolutely acknowledging people's pain. So the Apostle Paul states that for those who are single, if they cannot control their passions, and he's not condemning them. He's saying, if this is not for you, if this is not your gift and this is not something you're able to control, if you burn he says, burn with lust, burn with passion, burn with sexual desire. You should marry. If you have the opportunity to, you should marry. And it's not condemning. It's actually an acknowledgement of reality. But there's a, another category here of people. We've got the young married couple who the false teachers have come in and said, it's wrong for you to be having sex within your marriage. A man should not be having sex if he wants to remain holy, even if he is married, even if it is his wife. And Paul says, that's not right. That's false. And to the single, Paul says, well, if you can be single, be single. But if you can't and the opportunity affords you, get married. But the way to develop a godly marriage is to understand what a covenant looks like and to understand that because of the gravity, the gravitas, the Latin word for gravity, grave and serious because of the gravitas of getting married you really should prepare well and preparing well at the very least i wish more pastors would at least introduce the couples they're going to marry to the vows they're going to make on their wedding day that would help because the vows of covenant are deep and costly paul says this here's the third category of people to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. Paul is probably uh, in his 50s at this point. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. There's that concession by the Apostle Paul. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. But what about the person? We now come to the next category of person who is married but they're not in a godly marriage. What about the person who's not in a godly marriage? Is this a reason to divorce? Because Paul is saying this marriage can be holy when a 
godly man, a, a Christian man and a Christian woman marry, this can result in something really special for them, for their children. And by the way, that concept that I've just described to you was not how the Roman, Greco-Roman world thought of marriage. So when I say the Christian view of marriage is not traditional, please understand me. At the time this was written, marriage was a contract between a man and a woman to sire children, and that's about it. But the Bible comes along and talks about marriage the way God intended. And we know that because Jesus picks that up in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4, 5, and 6. He says this, From the beginning God created the male and female, that they should be united in marriage for life. What God has joined together, let no one separate. That's what Jesus said. That's a radical concept. That was a radical concept in the Greco-Roman world that you would actually marry someone for love and love them as a command for the rest of your life. That's a big deal. But what about people who marry someone who's not on that page? They're not a Christian. They don't care about Christ. They don't care about your religion. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about your God. And now you're married to them because you've become a Christian, but they haven't. Paul says this to the married. I give this charge. No, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, Paul says, verse 12, I say, I, not the Lord. In other words, this did not come out of Christ's mouth as recorded in the Gospels. That if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Verse 13, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For, Paul says in verse 14, the unbelieving husband is made, note that word, holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, there's all kinds of things we could say about that, and commentators debate about it as well. We're not quite sure what Paul meant there, but we know this. In response to the false teachers who said marriage itself was unholy, if a believer marrying, being married to an unbeliever is holy, then you know marriage is holy. If an unbeliever has entered into a marriage covenant with a believer, they have entered into a holy union. Even if they did it in a registry office today or whatever, it's a covenant commitment. It's not a contract, it's a covenant. Now, let me share a little story with you and then I'll bring this to a close. I'm mentoring a, uh, a student with Global University who was a Muslim. A few years ago, he was a Muslim. He lived in Iran. When he became a Christian, his world changed. To convert from Islam to Christianity in Iran is the death penalty. So he, his, his name is Muhammad, and his wife and his wife's name is Sarah. He and Sarah, his Muslim wife, had to flee, and she had to go with him because 
they were married as Muslims. And the marriage, the, the Islamic wedding ceremony asks the wife to vow her undying obedience to her husband. And she did. I had a Skype call with her a few weeks ago and I said, when you did that, did you mean it? She said, the words came out of my mouth, but in my heart, <laughs> I didn't really mean it. But they fled to Malta as refugees. Malta said, we have too many refugees fleeing from Iran. We can't handle them here. And the UNHCR relocated them to Sulawesi, Indonesia, where they are now and have been for the past uh, 12 years, waiting for placement somewhere in the world. In the meantime, a chaplain came along. There are 1,000 Iranians in this refugee camp in Sulawesi. A Christian chaplain, a Pentecostal chaplain, came along and met with Muhammad and Sarah and welcomed them to the refugee camp and said, what would you like prayer for? And they'd been married for a few years and were getting on in years and had not been able to have children. And they both said, we would really like to start a family. So the Assembly of God pastor said, I will pray for you now and hands on them and prayed for Muhammad and Sarah that, that, that God would bless them with a child. Sarah fell pregnant straight away with twins. She said to her husband, I have prayed to Allah for years for this and nothing happened. We, this man prays to the Christian God, Jesus, and our prayer gets answered straight away. I am no longer a Muslim. I am now a Christian. Muhammad enrolled with Global University in a marriage and family course and I was assigned to him as his mentor to help him through that course and I said let's talk by Zoom he'd never heard of Zoom and so we were face to face and he was like a, a, a kid in a lolly shop he had no idea that this technology existed and so we were able to talk and and he's just so thankful and he keeps saying you know as a Muslim we don't care about our wives. We just tell them and they have to obey. But now that I'm a Christian, I'm learning the difference that I'm here to serve my wife, Sarah. And, and the second meeting I had, with, I spoke to them both. They have two children that are around about the age of 12 now, a boy and a girl. And Sarah said to me very excitedly, there's English lessons being taught in the camp because we know somewhere we will, we will be placed somewhere in the world at an English-speaking country. And my children have been learning English and my, my son has been reading the New Testament in English. And he came to me two nights ago, she said, and said, Mother, I want to be baptised. And she said, Why? Because I've just been reading in the Bible that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you should be baptised and I want to follow Jesus. This is an amazing story of someone who has come from a culture where marriage meant something that was not what God intended and is now coming to understand that marriage means you serve your spouse. You serve your spouse. You give of yourself to your spouse. And I, it's my pastoral prayer that in our church, people will come in, broken in all kinds of ways, come in and see couples interact with each other 
and see the difference between how the world does marriage and how we in the Christian community do marriage. What do we learn? We should learn from this passage, this first bit of 1 Corinthians 7, that marriage is holy. Marriage should not be entered into lightly. It is a covenant. Marriage should not end unnecessarily in divorce. And a godly marriage is an answer to preventing sexual immorality in all its various forms within society. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Corinthians Part 8 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, a godly marriage is grounded in a covenant commitment made between a man and a woman. It's emotionally, psychologically, sexually and spiritually healthy. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us this evening. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.